We start with a hymn for All Saints Day, City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra Chorus and For All the Saints Who From Their Labours Rest.
and that tune was by Ray Vaughan Williams, uh, the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra Chorus there, and for all the saints who from their labours rest. Now, David will introduce today's poem from Malcolm Guite. Malcolm Guite spoke at the last Abbey Summer School in Edinburgh. Malcolm is chaplain of Girton College in Cambridge and has written several books of poetry. Here he reads his sonnet for All Saints Day. Here is a sonnet for All Saints Day. All Saints. Though Satan breaks our dark glass into shards, each shard still shines with Christ's reflected light. It glances from the eyes, kindles the words of all his unknown saints. The dark is bright with quiet lives and steady lights undimmed, the witness of the ones we shunned and shamed. Plain in our sight and far beyond our seeing, he weaves them with us in the web of being. They stand beside us even as we grieve, the lone and left behind whom no one claimed. Unnumbered multitudes, he lifts above the shadow of the gibbet and the grave to triumph where all saints are known and named, the gathered glories of his wounded love. Malcolm Guide. A song about heaven now, and it's how, about how the faithful on earth now will be there one day. Uh, Christine Getty and There is a Higher Throne.
And there we heard Kristen Getty with a song co-written by her and her husband Keith. The song was There Is a Higher Throne. Over to you now, David. And Roe writes obituaries for The Economist magazine. And she's also written a biography about St Francis. Michael Barclay talks to Anne about her work. What do you think is the secret of writing a really good obituary? I suppose the secret is to catch the soul of the person. I always think in terms of souls. If you manage to catch that, then that is a good one. If someone who knew them very closely calls you and says, that was a good piece, or I think you caught him there, that's the greatest accolade you can have. You came in for quite a lot of criticism when you wrote... Osama bin Laden's obituary, and you said that he liked taking his children to the beach and enjoyed eating honey and yogurt. How did you respond to claims that you were in some ways humanising him? I am glad if I humanised him, because it's too easy to say that people are either good or bad and have no redeeming features. I don't think this is true. I, I think in the most virtuous person there are probably things that they would rather keep hidden. And in the person who seems the most evil to us, there will always be redemptive features. I I thoroughly believe this. Having said that, I not long ago did an obituary of Baghdadi, who founded ISIS. And I'm trying to remember what I managed to find that was good about him. might have been difficult. You can't always rescue these people from the fact that they are going to be seen as villains. So have you always got uh, half an ear to the radio and the news uh, to see who has um, popped their clogs? (laughs) Well, um, slightly. I mean, when I turn on the news, and I am a terrible news freak... um, I am listening to see. Your latest book, Anne, is yet another sort of biography, a meditation on St Francis, uh, with accounts of him by his contemporaries and your own responses in verse. Um, What led you to choose to write about him in this way? Well, I had long liked St Francis, but I think the reason I chose to write his life in poetry 
was because his life seemed so full of music in every way. Uh, there was so much music in it, whether it's the music of the songs of birds, because he was so often out in the woods um, praying there among them, or whether it was the chant in the churches, or whether it was the music he made himself. He was a young man um, very keen on partying at the beginning, and then it's a wonderfully poignant image. When he becomes a friar and founds the order, he's depicted by one of the brothers walking in the woods and picking up two sticks and using them as if one is a lyre and one is the bow and singing as he does so and singing in French because his, um, well, the pop music of the time, if you like, was the songs of the troubadours and he always sang in French. So singing, you know, the equivalent of our modern pop songs. As he prayed to God, the voice of the spirit, he believed, spoke to him in French. The poems uh, you've written to complement Francis's life have a very strong sense of place, whether it's Sussex, London, New York. Um, perhaps you could read one for us now. I'll just read one that comes from a section called Small Churches, where I talk about a tiny little church which is near Alfriston in Sussex called Lullington. It's really only a chancel that's left, but it is very atmospheric, and this is the poem I wrote about that. Last stones of the abandoned nave graze quiet as sheep in half-mown grass, moss on their backs. A leaning grave speaks low of lichened holiness. No path is worn towards the door. Bright stitchwork on the western wall blesses the sixteen chairs. A score of hymn books wait. A priest will call three times a year, and on those days the cramped harmoniums played, the damp-paged Bible shaken out, mauve sprays of mallow picked, and in the lamp new candles jammed. Folk never seen file up the path from Olfriston or park upon the upper green until with screeching wheels they're gone and dust returns. Last minims spent infuse the fabric of the place. Lost spectacles left on the font continue to inquire for grace. Thank you. You have a, a, a musical reference there, don't you, in the yes, last the, stanza? Last the minims, minims. Yes, the last minims. There's a tiny little organ in there. It is mm. the, the smallest church. The only seats are about 16. And Michael Barclay was talking to Anne Rowe. And we have a song uh, inspired by words of St Francis of Assisi as Marilla Ness sings, Make Me a Channel of Your Peace. Where there's despair and love 
Nevertheless, with Make Me a Channel of Your Peace. Here's Cliff with The Faithful One.
Cliff Richard and the faithful one. And Cliff was 80, believe it or not, on the 14th of October. Last Sunday, he appeared on television as guest and Piers Morgan's Life Stories series. Interesting. If you missed it, you could catch up on the STV player. But it's time to go back to David. Adrian Plass has written a book called The Unlocking, published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. Today, Adrian says, What about me? What about me? Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the fleece is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Hello? Is that God? Oh, good. Uh, no, just just a couple of small things. Um, first of all, any chance of resolving the paradox of predestination and free will? Uh, secondly, um, any chance you could explain why an omniscient, omnipotent, all-loving God created a world which contained evil and was destined to fall? Um, oh, and thirdly, uh, why the delay on the Porsche? You think what, God? <laughs> you think those questions will take so long to answer, I'd better join you up there now so you can get started. <laughs> yes, that's a good one, God, yeah. You knew I was joking, really, didn't you? Not that I don't want to be with you, you understand. Of course I do. I'm really, really looking forward to it, in a way. Well, so what? Something serious I wanted to say. Well, yes, thing is, I've just been reading the story of Gideon, and I must say, God, it really is one of my favourite bits in the Bible. It's really inspired. No. No, I didn't mean that. No, of course it is. Yeah, it's all inspired, God. That's what I meant to say. Look, I don't want to sound as if I'm complaining, but... What? I do sound as if I'm complaining. Well, it's just that I don't really understand why you were so patient with Gideon. I mean, first he wanted proof that you were pleased with him. Excuse me while I throw up. So you organised a little barbie on a rock so he'd know you were pleased with him. And then when he had all this proof that you were pleased with him, he lost his bottle, didn't he? No, 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 let me just finish, God. Then, when you wanted him to smash that idol and pull down his old man's symbol of Asherah, he did it in the middle of the night, God. Were you cross? No. Did poor little Gideon gain any confidence from all this evidence that you were pleased with him? No. He had you up two nights running, fussing and fiddling about with fleeces and grass and dew, trying to remember what was supposed to be wet and what was supposed to be dry, while he snored like a pig, just so the poor, fragile little chap could be 100% sure you were pleased with him. What am I trying to say? Oh, nothing. Really? Am I what? Jealous? Don't make me laugh. How could I be jealous of a chicken-hearted son of an idol worshipper like Gideon? Yes, I am jealous. Of course I'm jealous. When did I ever get all that molly-coddling from you? Answer, never. Not so much as a fried prawn. Sometimes I'm afraid you just don't care about me. Well, say something. Pray with me. Why don't you communicate as clearly with us as you did with Gideon, Lord? 
Yes, I did hear that great angelic gasp echoing through heaven, and they're quite right, of course. Sometimes you do communicate very directly nowadays. You have with me once or twice, but you know what I mean. Do you know what I mean? I'll tell you what I mean. Gideon had a big job to do, so he needed all the reassurance he could get, but we could do with a bit of that as well, Lord. We keep saying things to each other like, God is holding out his hand to offer us guidance and love and help in every part of our lives. All we've got to do is take it and we all nod ruefully and say, yes, how true that is. But it isn't like that, Lord. Whatever anyone says, it isn't like that. Many of us are in desperate need of you. We can't seem to find you. Here's my prayer, Father. Show each of us what stands in the way of real contact with you. Be tough. If it's impurity or anger or disobedience, whatever it is, show us. Lead us into a place where we can know the kind of love and reassurance that upheld Gideon. Thank you. Amen. Two very different prayers from Adrian Plass come from his book The Unlocking, Reflections on the Story of Gideon in the Old Testament. A reminder, though, that you're tuned to Heartland FM on 97.5 or the Digital Access Channel or heartland.scot, Bridge FM if you're in one of the hospitals in the Dundee area. But welcome to Heartland FM and welcome to Heart and Soul with David Wilkie and me, Howard Simpson. We're still working from home with Sam Ross putting the whole thing together. Back to music and All Saints Day made me think about songs for heaven or from about heaven. Who else but Elvis now with In My Father's House Are Many Mansions. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not true, he would have told me so. He has gone away to live in that bright city. died upon the cross to bear my sorrow freely died that souls like you might have new life but I Friends with In My Father's House Are Many Mansions. 
These are words of comfort from Jesus to his disciples on the evening before he was betrayed. Actually, he'd be dead by three o'clock the following afternoon. Things moved so very quickly. But now it's back again to David. Ernie Ray hosts a series called Beyond Belief. Today, Ernie discusses the importance of the face to people of different faiths. It's now compulsory to wear a face mask in any place of worship. And I wonder, Joanna, does that make a difference to you? I think it definitely makes a difference. A fallout from it has been that uh, there's one point in the Catholic Mass when the congregation, the people worshipping, turn to one another and really communicate with one another because the worship is very much altar-centred, you might say, altar-centric. And that point is what we call the sign of peace. And since the COVID restrictions and since, you know, churches reopened, because uh, it's no longer appropriate to share the uh, sign of peace, which is a handshake. Usually priests, well, in my experience of uh, going to Mass recently, is they just leave that bit out completely. I mean, they don't have to do that. They could do a sign of peace that, for example, is a small bow or just turn to your neighbour and look at them just using our eyes. But instead, they usually don't do it at all. So there's no time to connect. And I think that's a shame because I think worship is about being aware of the other people as well as God. Rania? Well, actually, I have a slightly different take on it. Although the face is really important in Islamic worship, whether you're worshipping alone or you're in the mosque or hajj, I find that the COVID mask in particular is in itself an act of worship. It's a bit, it's like saying I love you to the world around you. Muslims' uh, primary duty is to um, not cause harm, but also to be of benefit to all of God's creations. And Mm -hmm. by going to the church, the mosque or the gurdwara, wearing our COVID masks, so I'm going to call them, it is actually saying I am actively taking part of this worship by protecting my fellow humans. So I actually think however much it does maybe restrict the way we're communicating, it's a different form of communication. It's saying I love you and I love God in you. I want to talk a little bit about the face as a sort of public canvas in religion, the significant markings that people sometimes put on their faces. And Jessica, particularly within Hinduism, it's an interesting phenomenon. It, it, it's something that also transcends the, the modern COVID face mask because it's all on your forehead. Tilak is something, a tradition that arose to mark out your identity. Who are you? What community are you part of? And to what God have you given your heart? What's your devotional, spiritual orientation? And it can be many things. You can have a, a vertical tilak in red or golden paste that shows you worship the god Vishnu or one of the deities associated with him. You could have a a horizontal set of lines in white, which represents ash, which shows you're a devotee of Shiva, a god who represents asceticism and transcendence and peace. And all of these things uh, let the world know what you are on the inside, things, again, you wouldn't necessarily see on the face. With women, of course, it's important because they'll have a bindi, a dot, which shows whether they're married or unmarried. It lets lets a man know whether to flirt with her or not. Um, And all these things are there sort of on the face, but they are meant to symbolise what's really inside and how you can interact with people. Joanna, talk a little bit about Ash Wednesday, when for many Christians, Catholics, some Anglicans will go to church and they will get a, a mark of the cross in ash on their forehead. 
Yes, Mass on Ash Wednesday. The whole, the entire congregation uh, go up to the front and receive this um, cross on their forehead. And I hadn't actually thought until Jessica said that then, but of course the same applies that, uh, you know, it's above the mask. So, uh, you know, if we're still wearing masks not next year on Ash Wednesday, uh, it's still going to be visible on our faces. And as the ashes are put on the forehead by the priest and he says the words, remember that you are dust and to dust you will return. And then you're left with a dusty big mark cross on your on your forehead and I think it's a for me it's always a very moving I think it's one of the most moving moments of the Christian year really because I think particularly in our society now today in the 21st century I think there's a lot of sort of reticence to discuss death and to be aware of how close death is to us if we're alive and how inevitable death is to all of us who are alive and I think that there's something very powerful in naming death and in reminding all of us that we will all all die and one thing I always think is particularly poignant on Ash Wednesday is seeing the little kids go up and they too get that cross on their forehead. And then the tradition is that you don't wash your face, that you keep the cross on your face for the rest of the day. In Islam, although we don't have specific markings, but the Quran does talk about the believers. And it says you see the marks of their faith uh, in their faces from the, the, because they are prostrating themselves to God. And um, some, some particular people will, will actually find that uh, the prostration might actually leave marks on their forehead. The, the more they pray, um, they might actually be kind of marked. So they don't do it on purpose. Is that, but really, I think what the Quran means is that the humility and the faith that you have in God is supposed to show in your faith. So the the more your your the deeper your faith, the more your face has to reflect the depth of your worship for God and your humility. Jessica. I think all of these markings are really interesting because they recognize that our faces are kind of inadequate to our deeper personality, right? So the Ash Wednesday marking, if you keep it, it lets people know something profound about your inner state of faith and commitment and your values. And very much in Muslim countries, when you see a man who has that mark on his forehead, you you know what he cares about. And it's interesting how in Hinduism you get this. I think it's really an extension of the same thing. It's a way to augment your body as an expression of you, which often doesn't express you fully. This allows you to do more. And we'll come back to that discussion just in a few minutes. Time for music. And it's another song about heaven. This time it's Johnny Cash uh, in, with In the Sweet By and By, or There's a Land That Is Fairer Than Day. <laughs> Blessing of rest in the sweet. 
Johnny Cash with a song from the 19th century There's a land that is fairer than day But now let's go back to Ernie Ray and friends Does God have a face in the Hindu tradition? Yes indeed, yeah It's interesting when you think about how different religions represent the divine and the monotheistic faiths of the West are used to having only either one face image that we get in Christianity often a, a patriarchal male or no face at all but Hinduism kind of goes the other way. It says you're, you're always using something, a word, a, a visual image, a sound to express the divine, which is infinite in its form. And so why not have a wide range of different expressions? So we've got different gods with different faces. And you know, Shiva, the god who is often pictured in the Himalayas meditating, his face, his whole image expresses serenity. Um, Kali, one form of the goddess, is quite challenging. She's often sticking her tongue out. Her her eyes are open wide. She may, she's she's expressing something which is almost powerful, almost fearful. And she represents the parts of life which are powerful and fearful. And you have to be brave, and you have to take that on. Um, and Krishna is perhaps one of the most popular deities in terms of the the visual image of the face because he's said to be ravishingly beautiful to look at. He represents all the beauty of love, the attractiveness of the divine, of what it is to fall in love with God. Joanna, there is also a tradition, especially within the Catholic Church, of Veronica wiping Jesus' face as he carried the cross to Golgotha. Uh, It has to be said there's no biblical authority for it, but many people think that the image on the Turin Shroud is, is that that was left when Veronica wiped Jesus' face. That's true, I believe. And in fact, it's interesting, isn't it, that there is no real description of Jesus, uh, how he looked in in any of the four Gospels, Um, which is quite interesting, isn't it? Because you would think that when you were recording, one of them would have given us a pen portrait of what Christ the man looked like. But they don't seem to have done that. And I guess that might have given a lot of scope and meant that Christ could be, that the face of the man who was God could be interpreted in different ways. Although, of course, as we might come on to talk about, in fact, he's been represented in one very dominant way. And that way is probably not the way he, well, it's certainly not the way he would have looked. Um, I think it's also interesting that uh, 
you know, if we're talking about the face of God, obviously that's that's the face of, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And um, and in Christian faith, well, in the Catholic faith, God is three people in one God. And we also have God the Father. But to a feminist like me, I, uh, I'm always told, you know, God is not necessarily the Father. God is the parent. But in depictions of God, you know, the, the central God, the, the parent character, he is always depicted as male so i'm thinking you know like michael in michelangelo's uh, sistine chapel ceiling and the blake painting god god the father is not represented as much as jesus christ but i can't think of a place where god the parent is depicted as female rania what does the quran say about the face of god the quran does refer to the face of god it says um you know uh, wherever you turn there is the face of god so the face of god is actually not the face as we understand it but it's the creation of god so it's the essence of god of the divine isn't everything you look at and 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 it also tells us to seek the face of god so it's not talking about kind of a particular face as we understand it, but in the essence of God being the the outer. So there's the inner and the outer, and in a way that you can still see God wherever you look. If you really look, you will see the face of God. And to seek the face of God means to actually actively seek for the divine in everything, actively seek to see and to witness the divine and to kind of want to be in communion with the divine. So we don't think of God as a, having a human face, but we think of everything being a representation, being in God and being the face of God. Uh, so that's the kind of the way Islam looks at it. I think that's very lovely, the way Rania just expressed that. And it makes me think that actually what we should see is the face of God in the, in the face of every other human being we ever see. Can I agree with you here? Because there's one verse in the Quran, which to me is absolutely earth shattering. It, it, when God says, when I created human, Adam the first, when I breathe in him of my soul. So the face of God, the soul of God is actually, I call it the first kiss, the first divine kiss. So every human we encounter actually has that soul of God in him. And everything in the universe, everything in creation is actually part of the essence of God. I'm going to leave you with Alistair MacDonald and Trad Jasmine, and the song is A Wayfaring Stranger. I am a poor and wayfaring stranger Traveling through this world of woe there's no toil, weariness, or danger in that fair land to which I go. I'm going home to see my father. I'm going home no more to roam. I'm just a going over River Jordan. clouds may well gather o'er me. I know the way may be dark and steep, but beauty's fields are lying there before me, where God's redeemed their vigil keep. I'm going home to greet my 
Self-love. 